Welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, where together we will once again explore the origins, battles, campaigns, individuals, and consequences of the American Civil War. My name is Sean, and this is Episode 3, Crisis at Fort Sumter, Part 2. Before we rejoin the narrative here on Episode 3, there are a few housekeeping items to be taken care of. If you want to reach out with questions or comments, feel free to do so on the show's Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash ACW podcast, or you can email the show at American Civil War podcast at gmail.com. In addition to listening to the show on Podbean and Apple Podcast, you can now also listen to the show on Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, or Player FM. Last episode, we left off with Major Anderson quietly relocating his 82-man garrison from Fort Moultrie on Sullivan's Island to Fort Sumter, located just inside the entrance of Charleston Harbor. If there is a possible alternative start date to the American Civil War, then December 26, 1860 could be one of those dates, as it set into motion the chain of events that would lead us to the culmination of this crisis in the early morning hours of April 12, 1861. There is yet another possible start date to also be considered. On the same day that Mississippi, the second state to secede from the Union, did so on January 9, 1861, the federal government's chartered ship, the Star of the West, was fired on by an artillery battery manned by cadets from the Citadel located on Morris Island. The ship, bringing in badly needed supplies in addition to the 200 soldiers to reinforce the garrison, was hit, depending on which account you read, by either one or two shots. Though the general consensus seems to indicate that only one shot did indeed hit the ship. The Civil War could have started right then and there, but it didn't. While word of the relief ship had leaked to the press and its arrival was known to the South Carolinians, the War Department had neglected to get the word to Major Anderson. Lacking information and orders and not wanting to start a war on his own responsibility, Fort Sumter held its fire, thereby delaying what was quickly becoming the inevitable. While these initial shots didn't start the Civil War officially or cause any significant damage to the ship itself, it did result in the ship's captain abandoning the resupply effort and the ship retreated from Charleston, resulting in significant outrage from the Fort Sumter officers. The outrage compelled Major Anderson to write the following letter to the Governor of South Carolina, Francis W. Pickens. Sir, two of your batteries fired this morning upon an unarmed vessel bearing the flag of my government. As I have not been notified that war has been declared by South Carolina against the government of the United States, I cannot but think that this hostile act was committed without your sanction or authority. Under that hope and that alone did I refrain from opening fire on your batteries. I have the honor, therefore, respectfully, to ask whether the above-mentioned act, one that I believe without parallel in the history of our country or any other civilized government, was committed in obedience to your instructions, and to notify you, if it be not disclaimed, that I must regard it as an act of war, and that I shall not, after reasonable time, for the return of my messenger, permit any vessels to pass within the range of my fort. In order to save as far as my power in the shedding of blood, I beg that you will have due notification of this, my decision given all concerned. 
hoping, however, that your answer may be just as well justify a further continuance of forbearance on my part, I have the honor to be, very respectfully, your obedient servant, Robert Anderson, Major, 1st Artillery, United States Army, Commanding Fort Sumter, South Carolina. In his reply, Governor Pickens wrote in part, Sir, your letter has been received. In it you make certain statements which very plainly show that you have not been fully informed by your government of the precise relations which now exist between it and the state of South Carolina. Official information has been communicated to the government of the United States that the political connection hereto existing between the state of South Carolina and the states which are known as the United States has ceased, and that the state of South Carolina has resumed all power it had delegated to the United States under the compact known as the Constitution of the United States. The right which South, the state of South Carolina possessed to change the political relations which it held with the other states under the Constitution of the United States has been solemnly asserted by the people of the state in convention and now does not admit of discussion. The attempt to reinforce the troops now at Fort Sumter or to retake and resume possession of the forts within the waters of this state which you abandon after spiking the guns placed there and doing otherwise much damage, cannot be regarded by the authorities of this state as indicative of any other purpose than the coercion of the state by the armed force of the government. To repel any such attempt is too plainly its duty to allow it to be discussed, but while defending its waters, the authorities of the state have been careful so to conduct the affairs of the state that no act however necessary for its defense, should lead to a useless waste of life. Under these circumstances, the Star of the West, it is understood this morning, attempted to enter the harbor with troops on board, and having been notified that she could not enter, was fired in two. The act is perfectly justified by me. In regard to your threat, in regard to the vessels in the harbor, it is only necessary to say that you must judge of your own responsibilities. Your position in this harbor has been tolerated by the authorities of the state, and while the act of which you complain is in perfect consistency with the rights and duties of the state, it is not perceived how far the conduct which you propose to adopt can find any parallel in the history of any country, or be reconciled with any other purpose of your government than that of imposing upon this state the condition of a conquered province. F.W. Pickens, Governor. As a result, tensions rose to nearly the boiling point but they didn't boil over yet, despite the mutual charges and countercharges of aggression. Secessionists from the other southern states warned the South Carolinians to pull back from the brink, lest they provoke a war before they were ready. As a result, a truce of sorts emerged, where the South Carolinians would refrain from further aggression as long as no further attempts were made at reinforcing it. A similar arrangement prevailed at Fort Pickens, located outside Pensacola, Florida, whose position was far more advantageous to resupply and reinforcement by the United States Navy. Following the Star of the West incident, no further resupply efforts were attempted by the outgoing Buchanan administration, who desperately wanted to hand off this increasingly hot potato to the incoming Lincoln administration. Major Robert Anderson, prior to Lincoln's inauguration on March 4th, had written nearly daily reports to Washington describing his increasing perilous situation with his garrison's increasing isolation and vulnerability. His only instructions from the outgoing administration were to do nothing to disturb the public peace. South Carolina, and later the infant 
Confederate government continued in the meantime with its efforts to encircle Fort Sumter with an ever-increasing number of artillery positions. These forces were placed under the command of a Louisianan by the name of newly commissioned Brigadier General Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard by the recently inaugurated Confederate President Jefferson Davis. In a letter numbered number 58, dated February 28th, Major Anderson reported to Washington that his command was running out of supplies. Worse, he further reported that it would take an army of no less than 20,000 well-trained troops to deliver those supplies successfully to him. This letter was opened by the newly inaugurated President Lincoln on March 5th, and the news landed with the effect of a bombshell, for in asking for 20,000 troops, Major Anderson might have well have asked for 20 million. At this point in March of 1861, the entire United States Army numbered barely 17,000, and these were scattered over a continent in about 80 different installations and garrisons. Major Anderson had in effect communicated to the new administration that without immediate support, his position was untenable and beyond the capability of the government to provide for. Only on the day before, on March 4th, had Lincoln, in his first inaugural address, had pledged to, quote, hold, occupy, and possess the government property in the seceded states, end quote. His pledge had to, in effect, two parts. First, to cling to federal property within the seceded states in order to preserve the principle of national unity. Second, to avoid any provocation that would drive the states of the Upper South, in other words, the states of North Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, Arkansas, Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky, and Missouri, to leave the Union. This could be referred to as a resolve and restraint approach to the crisis. Lincoln, as well as members of his cabinet, such as Secretary of State William Seward, were banking on the idea that latent Unionist sentiment would, once the situation had had the opportunity to settle down, reassert itself and the states of the Lower South would return to the Union. Major Anderson's report of February 28th, for all practical purposes, poured cold water on this approach before it even had had the opportunity to be given any chance to work at all, and forced the administration between what could arguably be seen as two equally undesirable courses of action to choose from. Worse yet, they were going to be forced to make a decision rather quickly, and before the administration had even had the opportunity to begin working the problem, let alone gain what today we would refer to as situational awareness. The first course of action was to evacuate Major Anderson's garrison. This action would and could only be seen as a blatant act of surrender, arguably not a very strong opening act to any new administration, or attempt to reprovision the Sumter garrison, which would possibly be seen as a provocative act that in turn would alienate the states of the Upper South and worse yet, might not even succeed. In response, President Lincoln consulted with the head of the Army, Lieutenant General Winfield Scott. General Scott, after reviewing the letter, confirmed Anderson's assessment and went on to state to the President that, if anything, Major Anderson had in fact understated the case, which he then proceeded to outline. 1. Sending supplies to Fort Sumter meant sending ships into Charleston Harbor. 2. No ship could enter the harbor without suppressing or capturing the hostile batteries that ring the fort in the middle of the harbor. 3. Large-scale amphibious landings would be required in order to eliminate this threat both on Sullivan and Morris Islands, which could easily entail sieges of an unknown duration. 4. 
not only would such an operation require more soldiers than the entire United States Army had in early 1861, but it would also take more time to assemble, organize, deploy the soldiers, and then begin to execute operations than what time Anderson and his command had left. At this point, however, General Scott admitted that this was ultimately a question for the Navy to decide. Quick sidebar. At this point in American history, there was no Department of Defense as we understand it today. In fact, the Department of Defense didn't even exist prior to 1947. Prior to 1947, each service branch fell under its own department, with each department headed by its own cabinet-level secretary. The Army, as a service, fell under the War Department, and the Navy and Marine Corps fell under the Navy Department. As such, there was no framework, legal or otherwise, during this time for what today we would call a unified or joint inter-service command structure. In other words, no Army officer could give a lower-ranking Navy officer or sailor an order, or vice versa. The only way to make something like this work was for orders to come down their respective chains to tell them to, quote-unquote, work together in the accomplishment of a specified objective. On March 9th, President Lincoln held his first full cabinet meeting. In addition to the president, attending was Secretary of State William H. Seward, Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon P. Chase, Secretary of War, Simon Cameron, Attorney General, Edward Bates, Postmaster General, Montgomery Blair, Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, and Secretary of the Interior, Caleb Smith. During this meeting, the President shared the contents of Major Anderson's letter with them. After recovering from their shock and surprise, their initial response from the Cabinet Secretaries was that Fort Sumter must be resupplied in order to save the garrison and maintain federal government control over the fort. For if the rebels were successful in removing the fort from federal control, then the government might as well give in to the demands of the secessionists. After the cabinet had expressed their opinions, President Lincoln had General Scott, who the president had invited to the meeting, present to the cabinet the military realities of the situation. Following this presentation, the Postmaster General, Montgomery Blair, a West Point graduate himself, fervently opposed any plan that included abandoning Fort Sumter, and in fact, advocated sending a relief force as well. Secretary of State William Seward was more willing to concede the fort, as the position was clearly indefensible given the circumstances, but not willing to concede on the overarching principle that the President had articulated in his first inaugural speech just five days earlier. Seward believed that shifting the public's focus was needed away from Fort Sumter and shifted towards Fort Perkins, located on Pensacola Bay, which was in a far more defensible position and could be more easily retained by federal authorities in addition to its ability to be resupplied by sea. Navy Secretary Gideon Wells had brought an expert of his own to this cabinet meeting in the form of Commodore Silas Stringham who had 52 years of active service despite being only 63 years of age. His family had secured a midshipman's billet for him at age 11. Stringham, like Wells, did not concur with the Army's view that a relief expedition was as hopeless as it appeared, and in fact championed two such plans since January. One plan had been put forward by Navy Commander James H. Ward, while a second plan had been advocated by former Navy Lieutenant Gustavus Fox. 
As it turns out, both of these individuals had connections to two cabinet officials. Commander Ward was a childhood friend of Navy Secretary Wells, and Gustavus Fox was the brother-in-law of Postmaster General Montgomery Blair. Both men presented similar plans in order to resupply the fort. Commander Ward, in his plan, proposed using Treasury Department revenue cutters, today we know this organization as the United States Coast Guard, and Mr. Fox's plan proposed using New York Harbor tugboats. Both plans proposed running the supplies to the fort under the cover of night in order to avoid drawing unwanted attention in the form of cannon fire from the rebel batteries covering the harbor's approaches from Cummings Point and Sullivan's Island. Conventional wisdom of the day held that ships were no match against fixed land-based firing positions. The Army believed that given the current number of firing positions that covered the harbor and its approaches by early of March 1861, these would be sufficient to prevent any operation intending to reinforce or resupply Fort Sumter and render it impracticable. It was this assumption that underlined General Scott's and the Army's position. Attorney General Edward Bates noted in his diary that, quote, The Army officers and Naval officers differed wildly to the degree of danger ships will be placed while moving under fire of land-based batteries. Army officers think destruction is inevitable, while naval officers think destruction is slight, end quote. The Ward-Fox plans at least gave the administration the option to resupply Fort Sumter without direct provocation, using armed force, or surrendering the fort to them. It would also have the added benefit of shifting the burden of decision-making from the Lincoln administration to the Confederate administration of Jefferson Davis. Secretary of State Seward opposed any such effort. He pointed out that the previous administration had attempted to resupply with the Star of the West back in January, only to see the attempt abandoned after the ship was fired on. He pointed out that if the administration attempted again and the effort failed, the new administration would appear ridiculous. Quote, better to not try at all, end quote, he asserted, than to try with insufficient force and fail. If the effort succeeded, it had the potential to inflame the states of the Upper South and drive them out of the Union. He went on to argue that until shots were fired, there is always a chance that the schism could be repaired. President Lincoln, however, was intrigued enough to go forward and ask Secretary Wells to begin flushing out the plan and directed that both Commander Ward and Mr. Fox report to Washington to report their respective plans. In the meantime, Lincoln directed that a couple hundred soldiers sitting off the coast of Florida be directed to land and reinforce Fort Pickens. And this is where we shall pause our narrative, with two newly inaugurated presidents managing a crisis neither of them had started, with Fort Sumter's position becoming increasingly perilous, and a new general in Charleston taking over command of what will soon become the Confederate Army. Next time, we will continue our narrative with Part 3, of the crisis at Fort Sumter.